This episode of Crosscut Talks is sponsored by John S. Adams, CFP, and UBS. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut, and today we're talking about outdoor adventure. But really, we're talking about climate change. The fact is, the impacts of humanity on the environment are really being felt right now in a very real way. For decades, climate change was more of a theoretical threat, something that people could see on charts and graphs and read about in warnings from scientists and activists, and even see the occasional evidence of in their everyday lives, but it was possible to ignore or forget about it. Now, it's in our faces. The summer of 2021 has seen record-breaking heat waves across the U.S., accompanied by historic drought in the Pacific Northwest, where I'm taping this right now. Wildfires have burned so consistently in recent years that anticipation of Seattle's idyllic August has been replaced by a kind of dread over the possibility of sustained and really unhealthy smoke in the air. In other places on the planet, hurricanes and flooding are increasing in frequency and intensity. And while these weather patterns are not entirely man-made, the science is telling us that the carbon dioxide we have been pumping into the atmosphere is making it all worse. And it could get a lot worse in not a lot of time, according to a pretty brutal report from the International Panel on Climate Change that came out earlier this month. Which brings us to outdoor adventure the place where we are most likely to come into contact with the natural world, and where many of us are really feeling the effects of what was once so theoretical, which is a bad thing. But for those who are hoping that humanity will change course, it could also be a good thing. One of those people is Amy Snover, the director of the University of Washington's Climate Impact Group, an avid adventurer herself, and our guest on the latest edition of the Northwest Newsmakers live virtual event series. In conversation with host Monica Guzman, Snover spoke about the changes she has been seeing while on the slopes and on the trails. And it's a pretty sobering conversation here. But this all could be a kind of wake-up call. As Snover says, while some impacts are unavoidable at this point, the story has yet to be written. I hope you enjoy the talk. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Amy Snover, welcome to Northwest Newsmakers. Thank you so much, Monica. I'm <laughs> excited to have this conversation with you. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to talk about what's under threat around our outdoor lifestyle, what's changing about the activities and areas we enjoy, and what people are doing about it, where our viewers can get involved. But let's start with what the outdoors says about us. There's something about our connection to nature here that's a part of who we are. Almost 500 parks in Seattle alone, the Olympic Mountains to the west, the Cascades to the east, we gave the world REI, Eddie Bauer, and K2 Sports. People from other parts of the country pack up their bags and come to get a dose of this incredible natural beauty that we enjoy all year long. So Amy, what's your relationship to the outdoors here? And to what extent has it become a part of you? 
I love that question. So um, I call myself a child of the outdoors for the for the Northwest. Um, I was lucky enough to live, move here when I was three with some parents who really liked being outdoors. And so I grew up backpacking and cross-country skiing at the time more than I wanted to, but now I'm grateful. Um, and when we weren't doing that in the mountains, we were off in the parks, Lincoln Park, Discovery Park, spending a lot of time outside. So I go outside when I need renewal. I go outside when I'm having trouble. And, you know, if something's wrong, I need to get outside or it's I haven't been outside enough. I would call, you know, the woods and the mountains and the snow my hallowed place and my place of restoration and renewal. And like I said, when I can go to the wild, wild places, I go there. And when I can't go there, I go outside and walk around the neighborhood or go to the parks. Hmm. You you said when something's wrong, you know, that it's a place of restoration. I'm sure a lot of our viewers can relate to that. So for decades now, when we talk about Seattle, we, we do talk about its weather, right? There's an old script about the constant rain and the gray and how summer starts after the 4th of July around these parts. But of course, things are changing. So do you describe the seasons in Seattle differently than you did, say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? I do. And for me, you know, since we're talking about outdoor activities, a lot of it relates to that. I mean, I, I used to endure the winters in Seattle when it rained um, because I knew it was snowing in the mountains. Right. And so that that was that was OK to handle the rain because I meant it meant there was snow in the mountains. And unfortunately, as it's warmer, it doesn't actually always mean it's snowing in the mountains. It might mean that it's just raining up there, too. Um, you know, we've seen our our summers getting hotter and drier across the region. Um, we've seen a couple of big ones like the heat wave we've had this year and 2015, if people remember that one. Um, lots of lots of years that are looking like climate change. So for us in the Northwest, that means warmer winters. If you live high enough where it would snow, it means less snow. Um, it means that spring comes earlier in the sense that the snow melts off earlier and things green up a little earlier. Um, it means that the rivers are flowing sooner in the spring, the rivers that depend on snow melt. Um, coming out of the mountains. And then our summers are hotter and drier. Mm -hmm. And now I think all of us are trying to get our heads around whether there's this fifth or other smoke season or fire season that, you know, has long been a problem or a fact of life east of the mountains is much worse than it has been and then is now affecting folks on the west side in ways that they probably didn't expect. So as someone who pays a lot of attention to this, right, and who shares the outdoor lifestyle, what, what have you seen yourself changing in terms of your habits and behaviors and sort of rules that you have for yourself? Like at this time of year, I'm going to do this and, you know, the trip is going to go this way. What, what kinds of things have you noticed yourself already changing as a response to what's happened with climate? Yeah, well, I... I think the biggest changes for me, like they're both in winter and summer. So I, skiing is one of my very favorite things. And um, for me, it's it's Nordic skiing. It used to be backcountry skiing. And so snow and winter and skiing to me are like in, becoming ever more precious. And, you know, 
um, this precious thing that I don't know how long it's going to last. And I feel like I just need to get the most out of it. So it's this extra kind of urgency and then extra appreciation and like living and loving it while it's happening. Um, I think the other thing that is probably familiar to lots of people is about the summer and the smoke and the heat. And, um, you know, uh, for us, for many people who go to the Northwest mountains, you know that June, there's still snow and it's hard to walk on the trails and July might be nice, but it's really buggy and often rains and August is the perfect month. And so everything should happen in August and early September. And that's just like that rule of thumb isn't working for me anymore. Um, We make trips for August and then or plans for August and they might be in places that are now on fire or just the smoke or the heat might make it um, impossible to go outside um, and recreate. And, you know, I'm just, I'm talking about me because you asked me about me. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's about those like in the woods or in the mountains biking or something, but it, I'm seeing it happening also for people who like, you know, road bike riding or um, outdoor sports in the parks, like when it's hot and when it's, uh, smoky, um, many folks aren't able to recreate anymore. And so ha- it it's disrupting the calculus. If August was the best, the best time when you were so happy you were a Northwesterner mm-hmm. and you'd never leave, now you just kind of wonder what, what to do with August. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of that month in particular, for sure. I, I see that with a lot of folks. So let, let's dive into climate change a bit more. The United Nations last week released a report prepared by hundreds of scientists citing a staggering 14,000 studies. It called global climate change a, quote, code red for humanity. It asserted that humans are unequivocally responsible and said that we're going to cross a critical temperature threshold by 2030 earlier than we thought. It's concerning stuff for anyone uh, living in this world right now. What is the big takeaway, do you think, in particular for outdoor enthusiasts in the Northwest? Well, there's, there's a, there's a lot of, what's the big takeaway here? The big takeaway is that more than one takeaway. Well, the big takeaway is that we are, we are on a path towards a future that I don't think any of us wants to live in. I mean, we're here talking about things that people love to do outside, and we could talk about how all of them are going to be harder and less pleasant and maybe not possible because of climate change. And then we could also have a whole other show on other ways that climate change is disrupting people's communities and health and infrastructure and all these other things, right? So climate change pulls on all the threads, and today we're talking about the ones related to outdoor rec. And I would say, again, we're on a path towards a future that none of us would choose. And I don't think any of us are going to like. And we're walking pretty fast down that path. And we've known about it for a long time. And so this report is showing us again, yes, we really are on this path. And yes, we really do have a choice. We've already set some change in motion. So some of these impacts we're going to have to live with. And it's not too late to make the changes necessary to avert the the really bad consequences. So that's, 
you know, I say we're looking at a future that's bad, but that future isn't actually written yet. And that's what, you know, the report is both really hard to read and also gives us still an escape hatch if we're willing to like help boost each other through it. Mm -hmm. So for the outdoor enthusiast, then let's take a track through the seasons, through some of these activities. We, we talked about you and your relationship with the outdoors. Now we're going to broaden it, right, uh, a bit more and see if we can capture uh, even some of, of the rich activities that people um, undertake out here. So hiking in Washington state consistently ranked among the best in the country. And I bet a lot of our viewers are probably planning some hikes right now. So let's start there. What are the top two or three things you think that hikers, mountaineers, and even hunters are going to see change, right? We talked about the future's not written, but the projections are, you know, pretty solid, some of them. What are they going to see change in the coming years, and what will it mean for the future of those activities? So I think there, there's two main things, sort of groups of ways, I think, that hiking is going to be affected, and then lots of things, consequences of that. And so, and we've mentioned both of them already. So one of them is fire, right? We have already seen an increase in area burned in across the Western North America, and part of that caused by climate change. And we, all projections show, um, that we'll have more bigger fires going forward. So when I say the future isn't written, what I mean is we don't know how much, right? Like we've, we've set some in motion and it could be really bad or less bad. And then we could walk out of it later, right? So that's what I mean about the future not written. So bigger wildfires, more frequent fires. And so that means all kinds of things, right? It might mean that the place you wanna go is closed because of fire risk. Um, and we've seen that DNR closing their lands right now, Forest Service closing lots of lands. Um, and uh, because of actual fires and because it's so dry that the fire risk is really high. And so that's both for hiking and camping. Um, and so then after, the, so there's the fire and there's the smoke, um, which is going in lots of places, not only just by the fire. And some people are quite sensitive to it. And I think all of us should be very careful about it because it's not healthy to breathe. Um, and then there's the after the fire, right? So I, I was backpacking in um, North Central Washington last summer through an area that had burned a couple years ago. And it's just mile on mile of like um, dead and down trees. And so um, there's a huge sort of maintenance cost and real challenge for the Forest Service or DNR who is efforts managing the lands to keep the trails open. And so the reality is that you might be clambering over a lot of trees. Um, which makes it not as much fun. Um, another you, big one. Sorry, yeah, I, I want to go ahead. Oh, sorry. sorry. I just remember you mentioned um, mosquitoes. I remember when I moved here from the Northeast, one of the ways that I bragged to everybody back over there is, well, we don't have as many mosquitoes, right? And and even that might be something that changes. It, you know, it might. And actually, I, I'm not aware of any studies about changes in mountain mosquitoes or, you know, it, outdoor mosquitoes in the Northwest under climate change. I was wondering about that as I was getting ready today, but I didn't have a chance to see if anything had been done. Um, so I, I don't actually know about that. But um, uh, another one then is, is through the changes in snowpack, right? So um, we have a lot of snowpack in our mountains and um, it's pretty clear, I think, to everyone that as it gets warmer, you'll have less of that. 
So that has all kinds of different consequences. It has some simple ones like places that were uh, would have been closed because of snow might have earlier trail access. Um, and they might have later access in the fall because it's not snowy. Some places, um, campgrounds too, right, might be snow-free earlier, um, which then means they've got to find people to staff them earlier, um, in, in, which has been a challenge for um, some campgrounds recently. But then there's all kinds of other things that kind of relate to that. So with the decreased snowpack, when it precipitates in the winter, we'll have more rain. And so you can have more erosion. Um, you can have higher river flows. And this can pose challenges to like washing out trails or bridges or roads. And so the North Cascades National Park and um, Okanagan Wenatchee National Forest and Mount Baker Snoqualmie National Forest, so that's the one sort of on the east and west side of the Cascades, um, did a vulnerability assessment for climate change. And they noted this is one of the major challenges is the impacts on access um, and uh, roads and bridges. So, you know, we could go on more. There's a lot related to that, but those are some of the main things that I would, um, I think people have seen in some of the extreme years and that we're definitely gonna see more of. So you mentioned yourself being into skiing, winter sports, and uh, this idea of wanting to kind of enjoy it while it lasts. What what do we know about how much longer we might have snow? I mean, how, how quickly might the snow go away? What are we looking at here? Well, it's not going to all go away instantly, and it's not even all going to go away this century. But I think one of the challenges that we have here in the Northwest is that our mountains aren't that tall. And so if you think about where snow line is um, and then how high the mountains are currently, um, this, there's not a lot of extra space up there. So you can think about maybe if you ski and you go to Snoqualmie Pass, you already know that you get rain a bunch of days. Right. And so that means that on that day, the snow line was higher than you. And so the warmer it gets, the higher up the snow line goes. And then the places where you used to see snow, you would more frequently see rain. So um, some of we've done some studies looking at the length of the snow season in the Cascades. Um, it's sort of the four to five thousand foot elevation band. So that's even higher than Snoqualmie. Um, but kind of Stevens and higher up to paradise. Um, and, and it's looking like in this coming, in this century we're in, we'd expect the snow season to decrease almost by half. So historically it was around 140 days and later this century we'd see it, expect it to be 80 days. So, so wait, that's how much, how much time are we talking before we would see that level of reduction? It's later this century, so around the 2070s or 2080s. Um, and then the, the interesting, I, I don't know, interesting, the, <laughs> we, we're not talking about a smooth trip from here to there. Like we started 140 days and we just like go down to 80. We, we're still going to have natural climate variability, right? We're still going to have years that have a lot more snow and, and years that have a lot less snow. So even as we're like the average is going down, we're going to have this like, oh, here's a high snow year, oh, a low snow year, high snow year, low snow year. So even late in the century, we can have some high snow years, but the average is going to be much less. And then the low snow years um, are really not going to be great. So 
if you look across the snowpack in the state as a whole, we expect that um, the way the modelers usually do it is they say how much snow is there on April 1st. That's the end of the snow accumulation season historically. And so the projections are for a sort of middle greenhouse gas emission scenario, uh, not a ton, but not doing a lot to cut them either. We would see a loss of about 45% snowpack in the 2040s wow. compared to what we saw at the end of last decade. And then a loss of 65% by the 2080s. So two thirds of the snowpack gone. And that means that it, the lower and sub, more southerly places would be losing the snow and it would be just remaining in those higher colder places. So that's, you know, that's not good news for people who ski, for people who snowmobile, for people who snowshoe, I'm sure I'm forgetting some snow sports, um, sledding and tubing, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, as you said, less snow in some ways means the precipitation is water, right? So let's move to the water. How, what will climate change and all of these changes mean for things like swimming and fishing? Uh, what kinds of natural events are going to be affecting those experiences? Yeah, so I'm glad you said that because when, when I say less snow, you're right. I'm not, I'm not saying less precipitation, right? right? We still expect that to be about the same, maybe a little bit more, but it'll be raining instead of snowing in many places. And so what that means is that we'll see much higher river flows in the fall and winter, and then much lower river flows in um, the late spring and summer. So, and part of that, a big reason is if many of our rivers that people recreate on, um, especially east of the mountains, like the Yakima and others, have a lot of snow melt in them. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's when their high flows is when the snow is melting. And so there's less there's going to be less snow to melt. Right. Mm -hmm. So that high flow will be lower, but mm -hmm. and the snow will melt earlier and it might melt a month earlier. So it might have, you know, where you normally if you were a whitewater rafter going for the highest flows, they might be a month earlier um, in some rivers. And then the, then if you just keep going through the spring and summer, the challenge is that those rivers that need snow melt um, to flow are going to be much lower, less water in the rivers in the late summer and into the fall, and then much warmer. And so what does it mean for recreation? It really depends on the place you are. I mean, I would say there's going to be challenges to that, right? It depends. Many reservoir, Many lakes are really reservoirs that are managed. Um, for recreation as well as water supply, and they're going to have a harder time keeping up at a recreation level. You are you see that in low snow years already, right? Where or low water years where there's the big dead zone at the side of the lake where the water is lower than normal, um, and so I think that's going to be one of the major challenges. We'll be back with more after this message. Have you ever wondered why Mount Rainier is called Mount Rainier? or how evolution has shaped our landscapes? I'm Ted Alvarez, the host of Crosscut Escapes, where we explore these wild questions on a series of adventures throughout the Pacific Northwest. For our second season, we're going back outside. And this time, we'll learn even more about the flora, fauna, mountains, rivers, and the people who love them. We'll tap into the deep and complex relationships we have with these wild spaces and everything that lives within. Scientists and experts will help us comb the hills for mushrooms, 
survive risky mountain rescues. And I was not in a very good position for that. And as soon as she waded the rope, the boulder came out in, in my face. And listen for birds both rare and commonplace. They're like mouse size practically, and they have this giant song. We'll even go on a hunt for the legendary Sasquatch, using science to find this elusive mythical beast. You know, I never claim that I've got a Sasquatch recording. I just have a suspicion, and then I'll tell you why I believe it's suspicious. We've got all that and more. Join us for season two. Look for Crosscut Escapes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. So we were, it, it, it's striking me that we're talking about a generational time scale, right? And with outdoor activities, often you, you ski because your family took you skiing, right? You, you kind of inherit some of these activities. So also one of the starkest ways to look at big changes in our world over time is to ask kids what they make of it. So our generation of locals didn't have to stay indoors for their health due to wildfire smoke, you know, the way we do, or cancel uh, athletic practice because of crushing heat. How do you see climate change affecting kids' relationship to the outdoors? You know, when I when you ask a question like that, one of the hardest things for me is sort of where you began, which is that we do this because we learn to do this from our family, right? Or from our culture. And um, I've asked myself a lot of questions about teaching my son to live, love skiing, right? I mean, I, it's, it's a big part of my life. I could go on and on and tell lots of stories about skiing and it involves meeting my husband and all kinds of things. And I, have qualms about teaching a kid to really love something that's so imperiled. Um, And yet, if you don't love things that are at risk, you won't care and you won't deal with the risk. If it doesn't matter to you, why would it matter to you, right? If it doesn't matter to our kids, they might just let it go. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think one of the challenges of all of this is that humans are really adaptable and people are like, well, I'm trying to go on vacation anyway, and it doesn't matter that it's smoky. And, you know, and kids, especially if they didn't know a different um, past, don't know that it's a problem, but in terms of being adaptable, but I will say that kids, youth are so aware of this issue and are you know, one of the things that's most frustrating to me in the world I'm in is where people say, well, we just really need to get the youth activated and like help, Mm -hmm. you know, get them motivated to deal with climate change. And I'm like, uh, they're actually really motivated and super frustrated about the world that's being handed to them. And we're the ones who can make a difference right now. So um, I think that uh, recognizing the responsibility that we have for passing on the things that we treasure and recognizing the real grief and anxiety that many of youth have right now because of climate change, um, I think it is really important. Mm -hmm. So you're saying, you know, don't, don't throw it on the youth, recognize that we, we, we're here. We have a lot of work to do. We might be busy. Um, I know that there's also, you know, f- folks who are younger too, who who are just like, man, look at what you did. You know, there's sort of a little blaming going on of like, what kind of world are you giving us, right? So 
man, I'm really glad you hit on some of those, some of those dilemmas um, and, and issues at the heart of this. So, all right, well, let, let's turn then, then to, to what we can do uh, and what's growing and changing. When we talk about climate change, <laughs> really we're talking about a whole planet and our minds can barely grasp even the size of this blue ball we're floating on and sitting on and floating through space, let alone all the forces constantly at work on it. So I'm really curious as a scientist who has to work in this every day and confront all the resistance and the politics, but also the science and how the heck we even do this. How do you reframe the challenge so it feels doable, you know, and so, so that we can take that framing on for ourselves as well? You know, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is um, some of the environmental challenges that we faced in the past and really made progress on. Mm. And I know they're nowhere near the scale of climate change, but they were things that people really didn't seem to care about and um, paths that <laughs> seemed to be cemented. So, I mean, I think about Think about Lake Washington, um, and this is before I really knew about it, or maybe before we lived here. But Lake Washington was so polluted you couldn't swim in it. And, and when was this was in the seventies, and um, it's actually Metro King County Metro was created to help clean up Lake Washington. It was so polluted you couldn't swim in it, and people finally decided that that wasn't okay. And uh, you know, again, it was before my time in terms of paying attention to an issue like that. Um, and so I don't really know the story, but you know the story in the large sense, which is that some people profited from the pollution. A lot of people were harmed um, but from the pollution, uh, felt like they didn't have the power to make a difference. And it was also their home and what they loved that was dirtied around them. And so, and and look, you were surprised. You didn't know that Lake Washington is clean and beautiful. I mean, it's got some little parts that are problematic in the summer, but you know, you, I swim in it the other week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we can, you know, to, I just keep for some reason that particular story because that's home, and that was bad, and that was fixed sticks with me, and so I just keep thinking about. Like, we, I would say, we do not have a choice about getting involved and trying to fix this. We do not have a choice because we're on a path towards a future we don't want. And it's a huge, impossible thing to figure out like what to do, right? Because if this were an easy thing to solve, it would have been solved. And right. it's super hard for any individual to know what to do and to feel like what they do matters. And so I um, I made myself feel better once a couple of years ago when I was like, I, I keep feeling like nothing I do matters. And then I turned it around and I said, well, the only thing that matters is what you do. Ooh, wait, can you say that again? That's really good. <laughs> yeah, so I, I was like, nothing I do matters, right? Cause it's just so big, right? My shoulder to the boulder, I'm too little. Nothing I do matters. And I turned it around and I said, the only thing that matters is what I do. Mm. And so change happens in mysterious ways, right? Change happens through 
political change, through social change, through diffusion of innovations and ideas. And there's no one thing that's going to do it. And so everyone needs to do what they can do. Everyone needs to, you know, talk, act, uh, write, sing, paint, hike and talk to hikers. Like everyone needs to do what they can do because who knows who's going to be that one extra little push on the boulder to make it roll. Mm. So before we dig into what we can do, Amy, I, I want to know then what what specifically is happening in and around the Northwest that you think is worth rooting for when it comes to climate, the outdoors, this whole relationship between people and planet. Um, back in 2007, you wrote a tip sheet for governments to help them negotiate all of these things. So let's start there. Um, give us a report card. How well do you think that agencies in, in King County and Washington State are doing considering the challenges? And what do you want to see them double down on now? So there's a there's two big categories of things we should talk about what's being done right. So when you think about climate change and 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 addressing it, um, there's two things we have to do. Two sides of the coin that are inseparable, and one of them is we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and we need to um, reduce them, you know, by half by 2030, and basically to zero by 2050 if we're going to have a chance of staying under the targeted warming under the Paris Agreement. And so there's a lot going on, but not enough going on to get us on that path, right? And Washington State has new legislation um, to help us reduce emissions. My work and my team at the University of Washington um, Climate Impacts Group is uh, aimed at understanding the impacts that we've already set in motion and then what we can do to prepare for them and prepare our lands and our waters and our communities for them. So I have a much finer read on like how governments are doing for that. And I would say that, and so what what should they be doing? Less than before how well they're doing, what should they be doing, right? So what they should be doing is recognizing that we've already changed the climate. And so therefore things are going to change. I already, I told you what those are, right? Less snow, earlier snow melt, higher seas. That's you know. happening no matter what. It's right? happening, some of it's happening, some, some of it's of it baking. Is. And so when you design a trail or a bridge, when you replace a culvert that, go, that fish go through, when you decide which habitat to protect or restore, when you replant after a forest fire, you need to do it recognizing that that thing you're building or conserving or restoring is going to live in a new kind of climate. So you need to design it to succeed in that climate. So that's what we call preparation or adaptation to climate change. And and that means that the money you spend, which is my money and your money too, Monica, right? That's our money that, that'll be spent wisely and it'll like actually do what it's meant to do. Hmm. And so... I would say that this is a happy secret about climate change is that our local governments, meaning our many of our local community cities and counties, many of our state agencies and federal agencies, and many of the tribal nations and tribal entities here in the region are including that climate thinking in their work. So people don't talk about it a lot. A lot of them have done it under the radar because they know it's important, but People weren't that concerned about climate change, so they didn't get a lot of brownie points for doing that. So there's a lot of stuff going on in from 
I mean, name a state agency and I'll tell you probably a story about what they're doing to help make our lands and waters and communities. I just want to ask you about an example. Um, I wonder if you could give us an example of a, a specific thing that here's how you would design it differently for the climate we are going to have. Sure. And I, I can give you one related um, to that access issue I told you about. So many of the roads we drive to get to the forests have um, culverts under them, which are those pipes, right? That when the water comes down the hillside and has to get to the river and there's a road in the way, it goes in a pipe, like the ditch and then the pipe, and that's called a culvert. And those culverts were built to handle the flows of the past, which means they're too small. Many of them are too small for the higher flows, the higher rain events of the future. And so that means that the road will wash out. Uh, I see. And so many of our, many of the agencies from Department of Transportation to the Forest Service to Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife are looking at culverts and saying, which ones are too small? Which ones do we need to replace? And how big, let's put in the right size ones for the future. And when we build a new road, let's put in the right sized one for the future. So that's like, you know, the stuff nobody thinks about because they drive on the road and like who knew right. there was a pipe under it. Yeah, totally. But it, it's all the difference for like if the road like is just there or they got to replace it every year and if you can get to the trail. So that's one example. And then I'll quickly, I had an, oh, I'll quickly give another one, which is um, in many of the national forests when they have restoration plans and they're thinking about restoring a forest that um, I don't know is, has, needs to be thinned or needs some restoration along the riparian zone because it's not healthy for fish. In, in the old days, they would say, let's look backwards in time and try to make the forest look like what it should have looked like in the past. And now you have to say, we need to look at what the forest should look like under a warmer climate. I see, right. So right. I need to make sure that, yeah. I need to make sure that the trees can withstand the extra drought stress they're gonna have. So maybe they need to be fewer trees so they don't suck each other's water up. Or I, after a fire, when I plant seedlings, I need to plant the seedlings that can live here because now it's hotter instead of the seedlings that could have lived here before. So those are the kinds of decisions I'm talking about. Gotcha, thanks for that. So. If you had, <laughs> if you had a bajillion dollars and a world of support to throw at one overall effort or initiative that maybe isn't government level, but more, you know, organizations, public efforts, uh, what would it be? In terms of like getting at climate change, the things that people can themselves get involved with. Oh man, you didn't warn me about this question. <laughs> um, I think uh, I think with climate change, we kind of know what we need to do, but we're not doing enough of it. So I, and I think there's this other saying that people came up with, with, which is when it comes to climate change, there's no silver bullet, there's only silver BBs, right? So there's no one thing I'm gonna like, I would put everything in. I would put my money all over the place. I would put my money towards efforts to reduce emissions, change policies to reduce emissions and get clean tech, tech and all those things. And I would put my money towards really applying science 
to help make these decisions better. So it's it's everything that needs to be done to make our communities resilient from forest thinning to figuring out how to do setbacks on the coast to restoring habitat so that salmon can still thrive. I, I'm sorry, I don't have a sexy one one shot thing. But I think the good news about that is if I had time to give you my enormously long laundry list, which has been written in other places, we can point your viewers to it. Um, I think people could find themselves somewhere on that list. Mm. Like there's the bad news is there's so much to be done. But the good news is there's so much to be done that one of those things you'll be good at and you can make a difference for. Right. So there's enough of a menu. This is a big enough problem that there is a big menu. And so, gee, everyone should probably find something they can do. Yeah. Hearing, right. Um, well, one last thing that I want to ask you before we move on to audience, que audience questions um, has to do, coming back full circle to that idea of the riches of the natural world around us and how we enjoy them and how they're almost a part of our culture and a part of us. Is it possible these days, do you think, to love the outdoors without working to take care of it? It's not possible for me. I think I'll, all I can answer is for myself. It's, it's not possible for me um, because the outdoors, the, the things that I love about the outdoors and the benefits it brings me and other people I know are fragile and need to be protected, helped, restored, and um, are really threatened by some changes that are in motion. And so if I love it without doing anything, then I won't have as much to love in the future. We'll be back with more after this. The Arbor Group at UBS has a straightforward mission to help you make the world a better place. Through personal financial planning and sustainable investment management, the Arbor Group works with each of their clients to pursue that client's specific goals. Learn more by visiting ubs.com slash team slash the Arbor Group. Now I want to make sure we do have time for our reader questions. They sent in some wonderful ones, as I said. So let's start with this question from Lauren Kiever. She, she writes, encouraging people to adventure outside is a gateway for more people to care about our environmental impact as humans, as we mentioned. Um, can you touch on this topic balance, she asks. And she adds, how do we make our outdoor wonders easily accessible to everyone while protecting it simultaneously? So I wonder if you can add a little more to the discussion about that balance. Yeah, that's that's a huge challenge, right? Um, I think there are parts of um, the outdoors in this region or in other places that people have seen that are in danger of being loved to death. Um, and so I don't have an easy answer to that. I think we need a, you know, a mix of places that um, are 
I mean, we, we have a mix of places because we don't all live in the same place that are easier and harder to get to. And we need to make sure that there are programs and I don't know what the other words are that, that make outdoor recreation accessible to all. I mean, I was super excited to see the King County buses or the, you know, the, that you could take a bus to trailheads from the right. city. And, you know, that's, that hadn't happened before. And that you, so you had to either have a car or know someone with a car or have enough money to rent a car or happen to live by one. And that just doesn't make sense. So finding these ways, because, um, so I think that's one thing. And I think that, um, I have learned so much from um, folks who really help expand the opportunities for outdoor renewal and activity within our urban and suburban areas. So I think if we think, it, it, I, I think as we think about making sure it's accessible to all and making sure that there's still space, we need to be thinking across that whole landscape. Here's another question from, from a viewer. Do you foresee daily health advisories being made, much like a weather report, to those planning outdoor activities? If so, how do you foresee communicating those advisories? I feel like we're kind of there already in some sense that um, there so yes, I see, I see. So in the smoke season, right, there are, um, there are many ways to get air quality um, updates in terms of like what the current status is um, from a variety of different networks. And then also from for forecasts and, um, you know, EPA and um, Washington State Department of Ecology and then other state departments in, in our neighboring states provide these air quality forecasts that come with guidance for um, what are sort of healthy or safe activities to do outside at those levels of air, air quality. So I, I guess what I, maybe the question is, and I've been thinking about this too, is that those aren't always easy to find. I mean, I've noticed that they're showing up on my weather app on my phone now, like there's an air quality information and I don't remember that being there. Um, and I, ima I imagine that local um, governments or newspapers would start including that in their information or TV meteorologists. There's a lot of good uh, science on how to communicate that, that is about you know, how to help connect the risk information to the activities that people are doing. And so you can make your own choice about what's healthy and safe for you. And there's also really good science about, and common sense, I think, about using trusted messengers and making sure that that information gets to all communities um, through mechanisms and, you know, languages and also just messengers that they trust or um, are even using. Yeah. So you had mentioned earlier a phrase I wanted to come back to, uh, that some areas we may be loving to death. Um, so one viewer asks, um, many people are asking about how to enjoy the outdoors responsibly. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on making adventuring itself more sustainable? How do we make sure we're taking care of the land and water that we enjoy? That's a good question too. And 
I, I think it could be, I could answer, you could answer it in a whole, a whole bunch of levels, right? Like, like one level is, what are you doing right then? And what mark are you leaving? And so that gets to whatever you're doing to leave no trace, right? And I think that there's a lot of improvement that could be done on many of our trails and many of our, where there are traces, you walk along and you can see that somebody's been there because there's some trash or something. And so um, part of it is what mark are you leaving when you're there? Part of it is, are you actually leaving it better? Like, did you pick up somebody else's trash? Um, are you leaving it better than you than you found it? Um, and then there's the bigger question, right? Is like, what are you doing to ensure the sustainability of that activity? And so that might be through how did you choose to get there? What was or or what are your impacts on the climate in the rest of your life, right? And how are are you active in trying to sort of reduce reduce climate change or reduce other negative impacts to the outdoors? in the rest of your life. So I think it, it kind of goes from the micro, like in the moment when you're on the trail for you that to a little bit bigger, which is like all of y'all who are out there on the trail at the time. And like some people are really good about talking to people they see dr dr dropping trash or whatever they're doing and saying, hey, I love this place. And that makes, I, I, I'm not good at that, but some people are really good at that. And then mm -hmm. there's the sort of macro, like, what are you doing? Are you, and some people volunteer with trails crews, some people volunteer with other organizations, some pe people give time, some people give money, some people, um, there's lots of different ways, I think, to contribute. We're getting uh, quite a few questions about skiing, snow sports. Uh, I, I wanna ask this one from a viewer named Peter, who says, I've heard that the snowpack in the Central Cascades this past winter was one of the largest in many decades. If so, how does that fit into the climate change story? Yeah, I wish I had those numbers at my fingertips for this year. I know that it was quite a good year in many places. Um, and that fits into the story I was telling about, like it's not a smooth road to the future, right? I We, we were talking in, in our group, we used to call it that climate change is a bumpy road, right? So you're, we're gonna have low snowpack years and high snowpack years and low snowpack years and high snowpack years. And we're even gonna have some really great years. But if you take an average over time, and this is what's challenging about climate change is that it's not one year doesn't tell you the story, two years, five years doesn't tell you the story. Climatologists look at 30 year averages. And when you look at that, over time, you see a diminishment. So, um, so we it it's totally consistent, right? There's no reason we can't have a good snow year. But I think one of the things where where climate change did show up this year is the really rapid melt, right? So we had a good snowpack in many places, and then it boom ended ended fast. In many places, it ended like at the season at the average end of the year, but it shouldn't have ended at the average because it was way above average snowpack, right? And so there's different ways it shows up, um, but that's one of them. And so I think it's the good news, bad news, right? The good news is uh, we're gonna have some good years, um, but the bad news is the good year doesn't tell us we're off the hook. So what types of initiatives uh, do you think that folks can vote on? I mean, what's coming up in the November election that might help uh, reduce or mitigate the effects of climate change in our region, any recommended resources to organizations, websites, et cetera, 
to help educate voters on environmental issues? Where would you point folks? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not actually sure what's on the ballot in terms of climate specific initiatives. Um, I think what's important is to look at your own representatives or whether they be city council or state legislator or federal Congress person and see whether they are um, doing both things, thinking about how to sort of climate proof or build climate resilience, build resilience to the changes that are coming and whether they're serious about acting quickly um, to reduce emissions. So there's lots of different citizens groups um, that, that uh, are involved in this and I, as, as I said, professionally, I work on dealing dealing with the impacts and sort of preparing ourselves for them. So um, I, I think I can give a list of things that people are probably maybe familiar already. Climate Solutions is a local nonprofit that does a lot of work around um, climate and clean energy transition. Um, for outdoor folks, Protect Our Winters is, is an organization that skiers um, and others have been um, engaged with many, many groups like Af American Alpine Club and National Audubon Society. We didn't talk about birding at all, right? They are doing things. And so I think all of those are really good sources for, um, for information about like what is on the ballot and, and how to make a difference that way. Mm -hmm. So to close this out, Amy, thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm really grateful for all the insights you can share. I'm curious, what's next for you uh, in adventuring out in the Pacific Northwest? What have you got coming up later this year that you're looking forward to? Well, I, I'm headed to the San Juans for a little getaway with my husband to celebrate our 20th anniversary. And we, I know, yeah, not possible, but somehow is. And so we're going to ride our bikes on the ferry and ride our bikes around the islands and um, have have a lovely couple of days. That's our next thing that we've got we've got coming. Wonderful. Well, congratulations, and thank you again uh, for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Amy and Monica for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Seth Halloran. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krasnovich managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to Crosscut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit Crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at Crosscut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to Crosscut.com donate. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.